0: So my question that I usually like to begin with is, you know why I love the psalms? Because the psalmists express things in ways that I can't. The psalmists have a love for and dependence on the Lord that I desire, but I constantly fall short of. They make me realize that the joy and praise in my life is lacking. And the psalmist, every time I I preach through the psalms, it's an example to teach me how to be joyful, to teach me how to rightly see God and to rightly worship Him. And I hope that our time in the psalms does that for you as well, because this is why we keep going back to this book. This is why we use it so often. It's why we sing songs that are written according to the psalms, why we use them in our corporate readings. It's why we, we, we preach through them, because they really are instruction for the Christian life, And it's not as clear as we see in the New Testament often. But it's so vibrant, and it's so deep, and it's so passionate. And So C.S. Lewis picks up on this. And I love the way he describes the Psalms in this quote, and he actually closes with the one that we're going to be in this morning. This is what he says. These poets know far less reason than we for loving God. They did not know that he offered them eternal joy, still less that he would die to win it for them. Yet they express a longing for him, for his mere presence, which comes only to the best Christians, or to Christians in their best moments. They long to live all the days in the all their days in the temple so that they may constantly see the fair beauty of the Lord. Their longing to go up to Jerusalem and appear before the presence of God is like physical thirst. From Jerusalem, his presence flashes out in perfect beauty. Lacking that encounter with him, their souls are parched like a waterless countryside. Psalm 63, 1. This is where we are this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open to Psalm 63. I want to jump right in because I got a lot to cover this morning. Psalm 63. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword, they shall be apportioned for the jackals the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt. for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Amen. Let's pray. O oh God, you are my God. And I stand before you this morning with all the people of God, all your people who you called according to your name that we can confidently and passionately say, oh God, you are my God. That we may bless your name. That we may rejoice, lift up our hands, exalt you with every fiber of our being like David. Because you are water in the wilderness. This world is a dry and weary land without you. Our enemies are all around us. But you cover us with the shadow of your wings. You hold us in your grasp. You are a faithful and mighty God who redeems his people from their sins. Brings them into his fold so that we can rejoice in your name. Lord, I pray that your spirit would go before me this morning. That you would teach us what you desire to for us to learn from your word, that you would speak through me, that it would change your people, that those here today who do not know you, that you would change hearts and minds, that the gospel, that the good news, that you save sinners will wake them up out of their stupor. And that we, as a body, can celebrate with the lost sheep who are brought home. And we pray in the name of our good shepherd Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Psalm 63 is such a beautiful psalm. And if you've been paying attention, we began this series in book two with Psalm 42. Now, if you listen to the language, the language is similar. Psalm 42 begins in a similar way. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Then Psalm 42 takes a different turn. My tears have been my food day and night. People yell, people ask them, where is your God? Because Psalm 42 is a psalm of lament. And while the psalmist in Psalm 63 uses similar words to begin, Psalm 63 is a psalm of content. This psalmist has a very different approach to his time in the wilderness. So there's some things I want you to pick up on before we get into our text this morning. As I always do, I'll get you to pay attention to repetition. And one theme that is repeated often throughout here is the theme of praise. Now, the Hebrew language, the Hebrew people were driven often by God to worship and praise Him. And there are many words within the Hebrew language for praise. And this passage uses almost all of them. And there's great praise imagery here. So look at some of these examples. Starting in in verse 3, my lips will will praise you. I will bless you. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Verse 5, my soul will praise you with joyful lips. Uh, Verse 7, I will sing for joy. Going down to verse 11, the king will rejoice in God, and all who swear by his name shall exalt. All of these images, all of these, these words are accompanied by images. We see the repetition of mouth and lips. We see praise coming off of the tongue of David. We also see his mind because he meditates. We also see his body because his, his flesh faints and his hands are raised. For David, praise is all-encompassing. Every facet of his being is directed toward the Lord. The other thing that's interesting here as we walk through and you pay attention, that the, the verb tenses here are past, present, and future. David looks back to the glory of God in the sanctuary. He looks forward to when he will be satisfied, and he speaks of his present joy. Past, present, and future, David is rejoicing. Praise for David is for all of him for all time. And this should be a great lesson to us as we walk through this psalm. So we're we'll begin in the introduction. Because in these psalms, the introductions quite often give us an indication of what we can expect and give us the context of the psalm, and this is no different. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, if you don't know the context, that doesn't really mean much. Why was David in the wilderness? Well, I will tell you. There's two main times when David was in the wilderness. One, when he was fleeing from Saul. And another one, when he was fleeing from Absalom, his son. Now, which one of those is this? Now, if we do careful exegesis, we'll realize in verse 11, David says the king will rejoice. David was not king when he was hiding from Saul. He was king when he was fleeing from Absalom. Hence, we have David fleeing from Absalom into the wilderness. But there's a connection here. Because last week, we finished in Psalm 51. We spent two weeks in Psalm 51, this penitent psalm of David's heart being broken over his own sin. Why was David's heart broken? Because he lusted after Bathsheba, sent her husband into battle, and he died, committing adultery and murder. And there was a curse on David. David. Not only did his son die, but God promised that all of his desires, his sinful desires, would be turned back on him publicly. So now one of his sons desires not only his throne, but his life. So this is coming full circle. David here in the wilderness is dealing with the consequences of what we looked at for the past two weeks. And this is a wilderness. Now, the wilderness outside of Judea is real wilderness. It is a dry, barren land. There are very few water sources. There are very few places for for shade. He's away from worship. He's away from fellowship. He's, He's away from familiarity. It's just him and a few loyal soldiers hiding in the wilderness from his son who's turned almost the entire nation against him. And this can be a scary, frustrating time. And this is a great example to us because we too are in a wilderness period. We too are outside of our homeland desiring to be in the presence of God. We too are in a wilderness. We too are not in our final resting place. We too are not where our hearts desire to be. So, this instructs us how we act in this wilderness phase before we go home to our promised land. But this also instructs us on how to act in our wilderness times. Because we may be in a wilderness stage until Christ returns or takes us home, but we all go through wilderness times in our life. We all go through times where we feel like I would give my life for a drop of water right now for some relief from this pain. I would love to see another smiling face because I'm living in a desert right now. How do I cope with this miserable, weary land that I'm in? And David gives us a great example for that. And how is this an example? Because this should be a terrifying experience. People are trying to kill him actively every day. He is outside of his palace. He is away from all the comforts of home. But what we see in David here is not a fearful man. We see a man, inexplicably, of great contentment and joy. Charles Spurgeon says, There may be a desert around him, but there is no desert in his heart. Yeah, you can always count on Spurgeon for a great quote. There may be a desert around him, but there is no desert in his heart. That is a beautiful way to describe this psalm. It's a man in the desert with the Garden of Eden in his heart. And this is a great compliment to our focus for our men's ministry this month, silence and solitude. Because as we go through the spiritual disciplines this, this year, we're going to follow up with each other and see how we're doing in these. David gives us great instruction. This is silence in in solitude. This is it exemplified right before us. How do we be away from everything, out in the dry desert, and still find joy in the Lord? And actually find more, more joy in the Lord than most people do sitting in church. So, what I want us to do as we walk through this, let's ask ourselves do I think the way David thinks? Do I desire what David desires? Do I view the Lord the way David does? And do I want to? This should be the desire of every one of us in this wilderness season and in our wilderness times to approach it as David does. So let's pick up in verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. I have to stop there. This is a personal relationship with a personal God. David is not speaking to some distant deity who doesn't know him. Oh God, you are my God. There is a connection between David and his God that is inseparable. This God that is transcendent over all the universe, as Shami said earlier. The God of the universe created me, and he chose me. But a God who is also imminent, who is right there with David in the, in the wilderness, casting out demons. Demons and this eminent God knows David in all of his faults and all of his fears and David looks to him for his comfort O God you are my God earnestly I seek you and this word in the Hebrew can be translated earnestly or early and it's not really earnest if you're not doing it early if it's the last thing you do, it's not really earnest. So at the same time, I seek you earnestly by seeking you early. This is something that I do that is first on my mind when I wake up in the morning. You can't earnestly seek something that becomes the last priority. We talk about this with, in our discipleship meetings with our guys all the time. How important it is to have first thing in the morning, the Lord be the first thing on your mind. Because it sets the tone for the rest of your day. People always ask me, how do you know so much about the Bible? Or how do you remember, or how do you be familiar with it? A lot of early mornings. Over time. Every day. And if I miss one, I'm messed up for the rest of the day. I love the heart of David here. Earnestly I seek you, or early I seek you. This is Jesus told us in Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You want all this other stuff? I'm a good God who gives good things. Seek me first. Seek me early. Seek me earnestly. Seek me in my kingdom and I'll give you everything. And David recognizes that. Because he doesn't just seek him partially. He seeks him wholly. My My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Soul and flesh. Body and spirit. All of David seeks earnestly after God. This is not a partial commitment for David. And how does he seek him? As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He's literally in a dry and weary land where there's no water. But he recognizes his need for the Lord is as water in a dry and weary land. What an amazing focus. That in a desert, under fear of death, all he can think about is, is his God. And his soul is more thirsty than his mouth is. More important than his body being satisfied is his soul. I've drawn on this quote several times because I love it. St. Augustine says that my soul is restless until it finds its rest in you. This is what David is doing here. My soul is restless until it finds its rest in you. Without you I am dry. But when I seek and find you it is like water in a desert. Isn't that The picture of a Christian life. When I was listening to Shami's testimony earlier, she set me up really well. Because she was before Christ, she's speaking as a woman who needed water desperately. And when he gave her living water to drink, she was satisfied. Not perfectly, we're still fallen. But when you're in need of water, you don't care what happens to your team. You don't care what happens to your favorite Netflix show. You don't care what happens in the latest headline in the news. You just need water. Nothing else matters. That is how much we should need the Lord. And when you find living water, your soul will never thirst again. This is David. You're hearing a man who has found living water. You're hearing a man whose soul is satisfied even in the worst possible conditions. So what satisfies his soul? Verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. What satisfies his soul? Where is his living water? Where does he seek? The sanctuary of God. The presence of God. Because there is where he sees God's power and glory. In the temple, seeing worship. In the tabernacle of God. God's dwelling place. Where his power and glory are manifested. So... For some of you, this may be hard to to, to translate. So what about power and glory can satisfy his soul? Power and glory has got to do with God. What does it have to do with me? If you know God is powerful, you can rest in his sovereignty. Think about that. If you know that God is powerful, if you know that God put this universe into motion and maintains its motion, a powerful God is a God who can do anything is a God who's not worried about your problems, even if that's all you can think about. What about his glory? If you know how awesome God's glory is, if you know how good he is, if you know how majestic he is, if you see his creation and it points you to a beautiful God who creates things beautifully, everything else pales in comparison. When you know God's power and glory, everything else seems like holding a candle next to the sun. how often we chase after those candles. So I would argue that our discontentment in this life is directly linked to how we view God. And I would argue if you are discontent in this life, you do not know God or your view of God is too low. Because if you know the Lord God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, Who is good and merciful and faithful and just and true and powerful. He will satisfy your soul. He is what you seek. There is nothing else that can supplant him. Nothing else can take his place. There is nothing more humbling than beholding the power and glory of God. And there is nothing more humbling than knowing that God set his love on you is exactly where the psalmist goes verse three because your steadfast love is better than life my lips will praise you the power and glory of god reminds david that this big awesome mighty god loves me because you have directed your said at me we've looked at this word many times has said covenant loyalty steadfast love A God who connects himself to his people in such a way that he never removes his presence from them. This is an unshakable God. Your power and glory remind me because your steadfast love is better than life. If you know your God and the power and glory of your God, that God has made a covenant with you according to his steadfast love that is more valuable than life itself. And that's a bold statement. Your love is better than life. And we know that in Christ, nothing can separate us from His love. We know that in Christ, His love is eternal and never failing. Turn to Romans with me. Because as C.S. Lewis says, they only have a glimmer of what we know in the gospel. We go to this, we go to this passage many times because I want it to be ingrained in your head. This is is the gospel in Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The steadfast love of the Lord is personified and perfected in Christ taking on flesh and dying for us. I will praise you because your steadfast love is better than my life. How do we know it's better than my life? Am I afraid it can be taken away from me? Am I, am, am I worried that it's not good enough? Turn to chapter 8. How do we know that his love is better than our life? For I am sure that neither death nor life, I'm in verse 38 here, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depths nor anything else in creation will be able to separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord amen the gospel tells us that the God of the old testament the faithful and true God who was with David sent his son to die for our sins while we were yet sinners While we were the David of Psalm 51, he sent his son so that we could become the David of Psalm 63. So that we would be united to him. So our souls would be satisfied. And if you know that through Christ, you have eternal life, nothing can separate you from the steadfast love of the Lord, you can say, I'm satisfied in you. Take this life. I don't need it. I have you. This is David's example to us. And he says, because your love, your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. If that doesn't lead you to praise, nothing will. He goes on, so I will bless you as long as I live. So... Because of your steadfast love, I will bless you as long as I live. Remember, praise is something all-encompassing to David for all time. I will bless you as long as I live. He is a life marked with blessing. Now, we know kind of what it means to be blessed by God. But what does it mean to bless God? Because if we think about blessing in a purely materialistic sense, and we, many well-meaning Christians, how are you? I'm blessed and highly favored. They like to say that because the job's going well and they have food in the refrigerator. But blessing from the Lord is beyond mere circumstances. In a very technical sense, what it means to bless is uh, to have the power for prosperity. That's what it literally means in the Hebrew. But what that, that means is God is giving something to you that gives you, that helps you to prosper in a way that you can't on your own. We're not talking about, and sometimes it certainly manifests itself financially. There is something that God gives you that you cannot give yourself and that no one else can take away from you. So when we bless the Lord, we recognize that you are the source of that power. You are the one who has blessed me. I am returning to you what is owed to you because you gave it to me first. That's what it means to bless the Lord. And David said he will do that for the rest of his life. David responds in adoration because of who his God is. My God is powerful. My God is full of glory and my God loves me. David adores his God for who he is. Last week, Psalm 51, we saw David praising God for what he's done. He forgave his sins. He made him pure, put a new spirit within him, put a new song in his mouth. As David praises God for who he is and what he's done, so do we this is how we understand what it means to praise what it means to pray what it means to understand God rightly we must understand who he is and we must understand what he's done for us and David as the psalmist helps us to understand that well so I will bless you as long as your name as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands this we usually associate with with worship but in in Hebrew culture this is actually a prayer posture I will lift up my hands when Jesus prays, he looks up to the heavens and he lifts up his hands. Of course, I think it can apply to worship as well. But if you grew up like, like me with like bungee cords under your arms, where if your hands came up, they came straight down, this is a little unnatural. I think for us it's more like ratchet straps. Like we just... But we see this beautiful posture of looking up to God, raising your hands. I will praise you because you love me forever. Because you are worthy of my praise. I don't care what people think about me. I'm still working on that one. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. You know i got to park here for a second. <laughs> satisfied as with, in the Hebrew, this is literally marrow and fatness. That's the good stuff. That is a good ribeye. That is oxtail. That is the, the meat that is surrounded by fat. And has fat inside of it. Sorry, vegans. No, I'm not. (laughs) You know that enjoyable feeling you get with that fatty cut of meat. That meat that has so much flavor that you're just licking your lips afterward. That's to remind you of the Lord. Why does food taste good? Because it is to remind you that God gives good gifts. And the things he gives us are delicious. It is not unheard of to be at our table and in the middle of dinner, not during prayer, in the middle of of dinner to say, thank you, Jesus. Someone will will, will take a bite and, and invoke the Lord's name in a good way because we know that it is a God who loves us that gives us food that tastes like this. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. You know that feeling after a good hearty meal? That is the spiritual equivalent of being satisfied with the Lord. Our God has given us good food to remind us of that. He says, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. I don't think this is by accident. I will praise you with those lips who are still licking the fried chicken and ribs off of them. I will praise you because you give good gifts. And the way I love food reminds me of how I love you. You have given me good things so that I can Appreciate them, so that I can thank you for them, so that I can bless your name. So next time you have marrow and fatness and good stuff, praise the Lord. Thank his name. And remember that your soul being satisfied is way better. Hard to imagine, but way better than anything he would get from a good meal. Now he says, "My soul will be satisfied with you, as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips." When, when I remember you upon my bed, I picture David here out in the desert, if you've ever been out in the middle of nowhere where there's no light pollution, what they call it, just looking up at the stars, and just meditating. No food in his belly, but it's like he just ate a steak. I am meditating on you. I am satisfied in you when I lay in my bed. This is David staring up at the stars in contemplation. Do you ever do that? Do you ever just meditate on the goodness of God? Do you ever look at a sunset and feel like you've just eaten a feast? I meditate on you in my bed. This word meditate, it's not some guy in India folding himself on a rug. This, now, there... There's a vocal component to it. The word means like inner utterings. Um, and there's a, there's a practice of a lot of the Hebrews would read the scriptures out loud to themselves so that they would be able to ingest it in, that they would, they, they would meditate on it. But really, more rightly, this is righteous ponderings. Inside of me, I am speaking to myself about righteous things, and they are directed to the God of the universe. I am meditating on them in my bed. And he is doing it in the watches of the night. If you don't understand what's going on here, when there's a military garrison out in the wilderness and someone's trying to kill you, all of you can't sleep at the same time. There has to be watches throughout the night. People will will get up and they will will take shifts and they will look out for the enemy. David, throughout the watches of the night, this, this means all night, David is meditating on the Lord. Man, I wish I could do that when I can't sleep. I have not slept much this, this week, but after reading this psalm, I'm trying to put this in practice. Like, you know, what? if I want to be awake, if I want to be staring at the ceiling, I might as well be meditating on the Lord. I might as well be praying for you. I might as well be thanking him for all the, 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 the blessings that I have, and it's been a great encouragement to me. So even in a few hours sleep, like this morning, I can find joy and satisfaction because he has fed me. He has given me rest even when my body has none. David there, again, is a good example for us. And so what does he meditate on? Verse 7. For you have been my help. For you have been my help. He's received the help of the Lord. He's seen it. It is real to him. This is why we name this series God Our Help. Because the theme we see over and over again in book 2 is God is the help of his people. God delivers his people. God redeems his people. God is with his people. He does not leave them or forsake them. And the psalmists say over and over again, you are my God, you are my help. So that is what he meditates. David in his bed looking at the stars, meditating on God's goodness that feels like marrow and fatness. Because he is his help. And what exactly does David talk about? What is the next thing that you need in the wilderness after water? You need shade. Shade. For you have been my help, in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. This is shade. This is figurative and literal. When you're in the desert, you need shade. That kind of desert, there is very little shade. I love uh, survival shows. Anybody else like those survival shows? And there's always a rule in the survival shows. First thing, find potable water. Find water that you can drink. Second thing, get some shelter. And it's amazing here that David in the wilderness addresses them in that order. The first thing he needs is water. He needs water for his soul. He is dry. He he is thirsty. And God provides that. God satisfies him out of just a memory of God's character. And the next thing God provides is shelter, shade, the shade of your wings. Where is that shelter in the wings of the Lord? This is a common biblical imagery. Now, I know our national bird is a bald eagle, and they, they look cool on stamps and and far off. But if you've ever seen them up close, if you've ever seen them eat, these are terrifying and vicious creatures. The image here is this powerful bald eagle with wings spread out over her chicks. And when the mother's wings are spread over the little ones, they're just chirping away. They're not fearing any predators. They have nothing to worry about because this powerful eagle, these powerful talons and these spread out wings have them under the shade of her wings. This is the picture of David in the wilderness. This is how my God protects me. This is how my, how my God cares for me. And what I do in that time, I'm like a little baby chick. I'm just singing for joy because my God protects me. Amen. Amen. And if you think you are strong and tough on your own, learn from David. You are a weak and, and susceptible little baby chick. But your God is this powerful eagle with draping wings who brings you in his shadows so that the sun and the desert won't burn you, so that the predators won't eat you. And there we find our security. Our security in the God who cares. As Jesus says, as a mother hen, I've brought you in as, as, as little chicks. We see this exemplified in David. And there's another beautiful picture that goes on in verse 8 as well. So not forget that verse 7 again ends with praise. You have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. And now this relationship between David and God is described, and this is amazing. These two images here are so helpful for us to understand our relationship with God. Two images. My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. First, clings. This word means to follow closely behind. It's kind of like someone just holding on, not Letting what's in front of them go, to follow closely behind. As soon as I'm looking up the meaning of this word, I think about all of the little ones we have here. And the first time a family walks in, or the first time a kid comes in after waking up for his nap, he's holding on to the leg of his mother or father, right? The, she's, she's staying so close to her parents because she, she's worried about what's going to happen. She's not familiar with this place. There is safety. I am clinging to you. I am following closely behind you. And then as soon as they know they're safe, they run like crazy. But there's this instinctual connection between a child and a parent that David recognized. My soul clings to you. He knows that there is no safer place for him than when his soul is hugging on to the leg of daddy. Obviously, this is not literal. do won't take this out of context, people, but there's an image here that David uses human language to understand the relationship between him and God. And this should be us. Are you that child who knows that your safety is, is clinging to your father? Or are you the one that as soon as they set down, run to the other side of the room? Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, great pastor and, and commentator, he illustrates three types of people in church, and really three types of followers of Jesus, using air quotes here. One is the false one they blend in with the crowd they got the t-shirt they're following tradition or they're following people they follow Jesus around until things get difficult there's another one there's the weak follower who's like Peter when Jesus is arrested he's still a follower of Jesus he still claims his name but he's ashamed he's ashamed to bear his name he's, he's ashamed to be connected with him but yet he still can't leave him alone and then there's the deep and devoted follower, like David, like the Apostle John, who lays his head on Jesus' breast, just wants to be near him, the disciple that Jesus loves. There's a very real question here. Which one are you? You the false follower, just showing up here every, every week because tradition says so, because I like the people of the church, which is great. That's not why we're here. And if you're here for the other people of the church, you're here for the wrong reasons. We're here because the other people of the church belong to Christ. And in Him, we have this inseparable union in Him and with one another. And we are here because only here can the saints pray for one another. Can the saints encourage one another. Can they come together in corporate worship and praise of their God where they can cling to Him and encourage each other to cling to him? Are you one of those weak followers where you bear the name of Jesus, but you're hiding with the other pagans behind a fire somewhere, hoping no one figures out that you're a Christian? Are you devoted to him, that you just need to be near him, to lay on his breast like John did? You don't care what anyone thinks. I am, my soul is clinging to you. This is David. Do you know that we're able to cling to him because of the second part of this? The first image is my soul clings to you. The second is your right hand upholds me. Upholds me. This is another beautiful, beautiful image. I cling to you because you hold on to me. This means to grasp. It means to hold on to something to maintain or sustain it. I'm I'm clinging to you because you hold on to me in your mighty right hand. You uphold me, the, the mighty right hand of God that we've seen throughout our study in Deuteronomy. It was the mighty right hand of God that brought the people out of Egypt. It was the mighty right hand of God that sustained them in the wilderness. It was the mighty right hand of God that destroyed all of their enemies. And it is the mighty right hand of God that upholds them right now. There is a security in the hand of God. Jesus brings that home for us, and we saw this in John 10. If you got time, go there quickly. John chapter 10. Jesus gives this great great exhortation on the the good shepherd. But he adds something, a seal to this. I'm not just the shepherd as long as you stay by me. I'm not just the shepherd as long as you do what you're supposed to do, because we all know that's not going to last very long. But here's the connection between the the shepherd and the sheep. Chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. There's security in him, and they will never perish. I uphold them with my mighty right hand, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. David understands this. Hundreds of years before Christ, Christ solidifies it in our minds. You are in my hand, and if that isn't enough, my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is the relationship between God and his people. We cling to him because we, we are so tightly in his grasp that no one can remove us. We teach kids he's got the whole world in his hands, which is true. But as adults, do we remember that we're in his hands? Do we remember, do we picture his fingers wrapped around us? Never let us go. No one can snatch us out. Eternal life being in those hands. Sometimes we need to listen to the songs we sing to our kids. But there's something else going on. God, I'm not unaware of what's happening. David reminds us of the situation. I'm here. I'm satisfied. I'm good. I'm looking up at the stars. I'm clinging to God. He's holding me. But, verse 9, those who seek to destroy my life. There's still people out there trying to kill me. He cuts away for a moment. All right, David is not out of touch with reality. He does not lie to himself. He doesn't deny what's really going on, but he keeps it in proper perspective here. Look at the tie. But those who seek to destroy my life. What does he say in verse 1? I earnestly seek you. There's a contrast here. David is seeking after God. Some are seeking after David to kill him. I seek for you. They seek after me. But because I seek after you, the ones who seek after me, they're going to go down to the depths. They're going to be given over to the power of the sword, and they're going to be a portion for the jackals. David is not worried about them. You know what's amazing is in the other psalm, we saw in Psalm 42, the enemies come up again and again and again. They're obsessed with what the enemies may do to them. In this one, the enemies are just a footnote. God, I'm going to praise you. Oh yeah, there's people trying to kill me. They'll get theirs later. I trust in the power of God. Given over. They'll be, they'll be cut down. They will, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. There's also another contrast here. But those who seek to to destroy my life, they will go down to the depths of the earth. That's death. But they will be given over to the power of the sword. There's a contrast here. David remembers the power and glory of God in the sanctuary. There's also a comparison. There's a power of the sword that belongs to God. Part of God's power, the power of God that David is humbled under, is also the power that wields the sword that will kill the enemies. David can find satisfaction because his God's power is worthy of worship but also is there to protect him. And he'll be given over to the jackals. The jackals, they're just desert scavengers. They're there to pick up the pieces. And those who chase David into the desert will be food for the devil, for, for, the, for the jackals. So a quick note here, um, and it's always worth when word connections are here that we don't see in the English. For those who seek to destroy my life, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, the word nefesh, it, it means soul and it means life. So, the same word that is in verse 1 is here. So, this could be read, "O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, or my life thirsts for you. Verse 9, but for those who seek to destroy my life, or those who seek to destroy my soul, there's a connection here. His soul belongs to God. They desire it, but they can't have it. These things are, are meant to draw our attention to it. And a lot of times, the, 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 the translators, because it can be soul or life, we, we miss those connections if they're not translated the same in the same passage. It does essentially mean the same thing, but there's a deeper connection there, that his soul is tied to the Lord, even if others desire it. So compared to the laments of book two, um, the focus is not his enemies here. There's serenity for David. David is at peace, even with people trying to kill him. He's focused on the Lord, and there is confidence in his God for the fate of his enemies, he knows his God is his help. His God will not only feed him and protect him, but he'll take care of the enemies. I'm just going to focus on you, Lord. This is where David is. And then we finish here in verse 11. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt. for the mouth of liars will be stopped. I love this turn. He's talking about the enemies, but all right, enough of them. I'm going to get back to praising the Lord because they don't matter. But the king, he's speaking of himself. The king who is in the wilderness, the rightful king of Judah, he's going to praise the Lord because God is the one who anointed me king. God's going to take care of, of my throne. And I'm not worried about the enemies because my, my hand is in the hand of, of my God. And there is a connection here between the language of, for those who swear by him shall exalt, but the mouths of the liars shall be stopped. The mouth of God's servant rejoices. The mouth of the liars is silenced. David brings this together because we, what I didn't get into is Absalom and those who support Absalom are spreading lies about David. Absalom's supporters are trying to turn the rest of Israel against him. They are lying about him. But instead of giving into their lies and worrying about them, David uses his mouth to praise the Lord. And the mouth that is lying against the Lord's anointed, it will be silenced by the Lord. So to conclude quickly, I want to remind you that we are in a wilderness period in our lives. We are not where we are meant to be. We are not in our promised land. We are outside of it. And this psalm helps us to understand the Christian life. And this is a great description of the Christian life. So we know as believers, we put our faith in Christ. We know that we are under the shadow of the wings of our God and that he holds us. Yet at the same time, there's a tension. We know that God holds us, but we know that we must seek after him earnestly. We know that we must cling to him. We know that we need him like we need water in a desert. And in the absence of all worldly comforts, everything is familiar to him. David finds his his satisfaction in the Lord. Do you? I want you to look at verse 1 again with me. Can you read verse 1 confidently? Can you read verse 1 and mean it? O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Can you read verses five through eight and mean it? My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. This is the Christian life. Amen. So my challenge to you today and this week, read this psalm. Meditate on it. Do you feel how David feels? Do you desire what David desires? Do you see God as he does? And I will challenge you. Seek the Lord early. Seek him earnestly beyond anything else. And he will put a song of praise in your mouth. Let's pray. Thank you that you are good and faithful God. Thank you that you set your steadfast love on sinners like us. Thank you that while we are as guilty as David, lusting after Bathsheba and putting your to at death, you give us the satisfaction that you give to J- to david and the contentment in the wilderness times of our lives lord i pray that this would be an encouragement to the believers this morning i pray that you would sustain us with your word that it would challenge us that it would teach us and i pray for those out there who are still in a desert who do not know living water that you would create a thirst in in, in their mouth that can be that cannot be quenched by anything else that they would seek earnestly after you, find and drink and never thirst again. Lord, we find our satisfaction in you. We cling to you because you are our God. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.